For so many people, Sex in the City is a model for the ideal New York City life and dream. You get to sit with your friends on Fifth Avenue, drinking Cosmos and living out your main character life. But what they don't show is the hard work and perseverance that living in New York City really is. Join me, Caven Hendren, as I set out to cultivate a community of people from various industries, from the performing arts world, to the modeling world, even the real estate and finance world, to talk about what it's actually like living in the concrete jungle. Along the way, we'll have thought-provoking conversation, share advice to each other, share advice to you, and don't worry, we'll drink a few Cosmos along the way. This is The Bradshaw Effect. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of The Bradshaw Effect. You guys, today I am so excited to have Holly Cinnamon on here to talk about uh, her career and everything, and we met, actually, during Matthew Davies had his uh, album debut show and in true mm-hmm. New York fashion we were chatting up in the crowd and just hearing all of the things that she's done I was like we have to have you on the podcast and so you know a couple months later here we are doing the thing so hi Holly <laughs> thanks thanks for having me yeah actually um so I know Matthew Lowy who I think was the arranger of the of Matthew Davies show. So the two Matthews, you're friends with one Matthew, yeah. I knew another. And that's how we came to intro uh, New York fashion, as you said. Yeah. The Matthews that's, drew us together. Exactly. And I mean, that's what I love about the city. It's just because every time I feel like you go out somewhere, no matter what event it is, you're always going to run into somebody who knows somebody. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you can hold the entire city of New York, especially our industry, you know, in your hands and just like, oh, look at everybody. Especially... There. Yeah, especially in queer spaces, I feel Mm -hmm. like I, that night I ran into someone who we had just run into each other at like the last three concerts we both went to because they were all queer spaces. So we're like, okay, we need to be friends. We actually sat together (laughs) because we kept running into each other at the same concerts. I love that. So why don't you tell everybody about your story of getting to New York? So I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, which is in Western Canada. And I guess the seed of it started when I was 13. And I watched Hello, Dolly in the middle of the night at a like movie marathon with my friends. And I fell in love with Barbara Streisand. And I decided that moment that I wanted to be an actor and a singer and on Broadway. And I was just in love with Barbara. I don't think I realized at the time it was a crush, but in retrospect, it was like my first, the my first love. <laughs> um, and so that was the motivation, I guess. And I started studying musical theater and then started directing devised theater and long story short, moved from there to Montreal and then eventually moved from Montreal to Boston when I got into grad school. So that's how I ended up in America. Um, I went to the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley for an MFA in musical theater, which I think is one of the funniest degrees <laughs> to have to be a, a master of musical theater of all things. And then from there, I moved to New York and I had a six month work permit at the time. And I was hustling because I wanted to stay because it was like I finally got to my dream place and I didn't know if I would stay. And I booked an off-Broadway show called Dear Jane. And that helped me. They helped me get an O-1, an artist visa. And then since then, I've been on various artist visas. And then within that first year, I also booked uh, Marvel's Daredevil. Um, my very first ever TV audition in New York, which we can talk about if you if you want, but, um, which is why, I mean, a wild story because I, 
I couldn't get an agent really because um, being on a six month work permit, nobody wanted to, even if they liked my work, they didn't want to sign me because they were like, we don't know how sustainable this is. Um, You don't Hmm. have a green card. So a bunch of great agents had turned me down. And then I met this guy at an open call who was starting his own agency. I think he was like 18, like 10 years, maybe even younger than me. Maybe not quite 10 years, but it felt like I was, I was working with a teenager. Um, no offense to him. I mean, he, he got me to where I am. So thank you. If you're out there listening to this, uh, you know who you are. Um, but he only ever got me one audition and neither of us knew that it was for a Marvel show. I thought it was from, for, cause they have code names. So I thought it was so their for, secret like, with their stuff. Yeah, it was called Ringside, so I thought it was for a wrestling movie, and it was my first ever film or TV audition. I went in, I was playing a girl next door, I was like, okay, I can just act like a normal person in the scene, like, doing a mute cute, being like, oh, give me your number. Um, I didn't know it was with an Emmy Award winning casting director, because I didn't know, you know, and that's the thing, you know, it's that, like, beginner's luck where you don't know things, and that actually helps you. So I booked... I booked Marvel's Daredevil, and then I guess the rest is history. I got the agents that I wanted after that, and now I'm here. Funny enough, whenever we were talking, I was like, where do I know you from? Because I think that was like one of the first things I said whenever I came up to you. I was like, you look really familiar. I was, I don't think I told you this because I didn't connect it. I was watching Daredevil at the time because I was trying to catch up on all the Marvel things. Uh-huh, and I had watched your Daredevil. episode and I, that <laughs> is where I recognized you from. Cause as I was doing my little research, getting ready for the episode and recording um, a couple weeks ago, I was like looking and I was like, holy shit, that's where I know Holly Rowe. Oh, that's funny. It's just like one of those moments whenever you can't pin it, but your brain knows. I was walking down the street in the West Village the other night um, and I walked by Mal from Ultimatum Queer Love. and. I who you know is trend blowing up right now and I didn't know like my brain didn't make the connection so I was like I know you <laughs> we were just making eye contact and I was trying to figure it out and then by the time I like walked by fully and got to the restaurant I was like oh it's that's Mal oh shoot I should have hit on them missed my <laughs> opportunity in the West Village I have another West Village moment I could tell you about I was um I sing um often I sing to myself, I'm writing songs constantly. And I'm often just even on the streets of New York, I'll walk down the street singing out loud, humming. I'm shameless about it, you know. (laughs) Um, And I was walking home one night um, and singing to myself. And I just saw someone walking at a distance towards me, um, tall, wearing all black, very like clearly very femme presenting. And I was like walking and I was still singing. And then like, as they were approaching, I'm like, oh, that's Anne Hathaway. And I just kept singing and we were both alone on an empty street. We walked by each other. I didn't stop singing. We made full eye contact. I kept singing. I kept walking. And then like, you know, I did like the five meter pass, like turnaround over the shoulder to be like, and so did she. And I was like, Anne Hathaway checking me out. And I feel like she was like, is that chick still singing? Yeah, she is. Okay, that's confidence. I respect it. So <laughs> That's a great segue to kind of go into your music that I wanted to talk about. So uh-huh. whenever we met each other, you told me about your song, Small Town Queer, that you had done. Mm-hmm. And so on the train ride home after that show, I listened to the song and holy shit, it is so good. So I grew up in Kentucky. 
So it mm-hmm. it has that sound that feel like that folk sound that I'm used to from growing up there, but also has this whole element of like my life where it is now kind mm-hmm. of perfectly marrying itself together. Talk to me about that. Like, so when you were not just that song in particular, but your whole song journey, what does that look like for you? Yeah. So I've been writing songs. I mean, I guess I wrote some kind of shitty songs since I was a teenager, but I really started writing songs since I moved to New York. Um, and developing them with with Matthew Lowy, who we met um, at Matthew Davies, or he he was the um, arranger, I think, of Matthew Davies' show and musical conductor. So I've been writing songs for I guess like seven or eight years, like very uh, in a focused way. Um, that song, so I just that's my most recent single, and I'm going to be doing a full length studio album with the same at the same studio where I just recorded it. And that song for me was really like a throwback to my teenage years and kind of something that's really potent in my music right now is like self healing and -hmm. looking at past selves, particularly like as a queer person, that's been an evolution. I have a song that I'm working on for this upcoming album that's about when I identified as pans and my experience as like a pansexual person. And then since then I identify as a lesbian more so and then I have a song more recently that's about being someone who identifies as a lesbian who's then um, falling for someone that's like more trans mask or non-binary and is like moving towards masculinity and feeling like oh this is kind of hetero and like I'm negotiating (laughs) that as a lesbian but um, Small Town Queer is like going back to the very beginning for me when I was a teenager. I filmed a lot of the music video in my high school and so like in local places that I was physically like over the holidays when I was visiting my family that I was physically in during those years of my life. And it was really powerful for me to just represent that small town queer identity, that kind of in-betweenness where you do belong in the place that you're from, where there are parts of you that you know that's that's home that's where you've grown up that's where you live that's that is your community and then there's this other part of you that maybe can't feel at home now I mean right Mm. now I think that's particularly potent maybe even if it has felt like home and then those rights are being stripped away and it's feeling less and less safe every day I think right now for queer people in a lot of states and in a lot of places in the world so it's that do du- that that duality that both are coexisting um the sense of belonging and not belonging because I think we tend to see things so binary and black and white not just in terms of gender but in terms of like red and blue in America and like religious yeah. and secular or you know urban and rural And for me, it's a lot more complicated than that. So being like a rural queer person that's navigating that and maybe wants to go to New York someday, but hasn't saved up enough money to like make that journey. There are some things that feel like home where they are at the same time. So it's a little more of a nuanced struggle than just like a, I uh, totally hate where I am and need to be somewhere else. There's more of an in-between thing that I really wanted to explore in that song. Sound queer and I'm way out here. Can I go to New York City where they're living so pretty? Gonna save up for a year. So I'm a small town queer and I'm stuck out here. No one knows the real me, but I can feel me bursting at the seams if I could win jeans. So as you kind of got 
you know, your music stuff going when did you ever start doing kind of like live shows places like at you know bars and little concerts and stuff like that yeah there are a lot of cool venues that I used to play at that they just either shut down or it's just a different vibe so I'm kind of getting back into that I um I want now that I'm producing my own music I mean I produced seven singles during the pandemic and I never produced my own music before so I got really focused on on production Mm -hmm. Um, and now I'm making a full length album. So I'm kind of waiting until I have more of a breadth of music online just to strategically then start going live again and saying, this is where you can follow me. This is what you can listen to. So that's, that's the plan. I love that. Or do you still have your toe dipped in like, you know, film and TV musical theater world right now too? Yeah, I actually, I, well, I have a tentative booking. I can't really talk about it, but um, everything's on hold because of the writer's strike. And um, we're recording this in July. I don't know when this is going to come out, but currently there's a writer's strike. So yeah, I've been auditioning for a lot of theater, regional theater and in, in New York, but I just booked a, a, a tiny part in a big movie. Um, tentatively, ah. I mean, everything is tentative because of the strike. So they're like, sure, you're the director's choice, but, um, who knows if, and when, like, this is going to be made eventually, but things could change, you know? Um, so yeah, so that's exciting. So I'm still, I'm still working in film and TV. That's still mainly where I make my income. Music is my kind of soul, soul side yeah. hustle right now. Absolutely. Um, that's me with writing while we're on talking about the film and TV stuff, you were just in an uh -huh. episode of Succession. Uh -huh. Talk talk to me about that. What was that like? So I think it's important to frame it knowing that I was uh, Shiv's stand-in for two seasons before I did that episode. Oh um, because that's such a big part of the experience. From Oh, you didn't know that part? I didn't know that no. part, no. Yeah, so I was Sarah Snook's stand-in on Succession for seasons three and four. I took that job during the pandemic in 2020. Um, I came back to New York in the fall of 2020, uh, which was quite early compared to when a lot of people returned to mm -hmm. New York and there was no vaccines. Um, and a lot of the industry was still shut down and not many shows had started shooting again. Um, but in, I think November, December of 2020, I, uh, through a friend who is the Logan stand in who had, who had scouted me on another set and said oh my gosh you look a lot like Shiv if you ever want to be a stand-in you would be a great match for Sarah and I work on that set and maybe I can connect you so when 2020 happened and you know I wasn't working as much I was like you know now's a great time to be a stand-in and have yeah. a consistent job they actually hired us on a weekly contract which was really lovely so um it was just a nice place to get to go every week and have a consistent job and see the same people and feel like I had a purpose in the world. Um, so I, I shot season three with them. We went to Virginia together at the end of the season. That was lovely. And then um, I shot, see, I, I decided to come back for season four uh, and Lorene Scafaria, who directed the Kendall's birthday episode in season three and also directed 404 and 406 in season four who is an amazing writer and director um she wrote and directed hustlers with constance Wu and j-lo and wrote mm -hmm. and directed the meddler with susan sarandon and rose byrne um she's just brilliant 
so I had gotten to know her when we were shooting the Kendall's birthday episode, which I think is one of the funniest and one of my favorite episodes um, in season three. And I had to do this. There's a moment where Shiv dances like a crazy person on the dance floor and uh, Nick Braun and another character are watching and, and talking about how crazy she looks. And as her stand in, they shot the scene from above where she danced and with all the background. And then they she went home it was this was like the middle of the night um in in 2020 or 2021 uh, like i guess to 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 put it in context this was like before bars were open before you could go dancing again you know everything was closed and then they shot the scene with me standing in for her with him and this other character looking down and talking about her crazy dancing on a big empty dance floor and I was like, you know, I could stand here, you know, and they could just look at her eyeline. That's my job. Or I could dance. Like I could just freaking dance like a crazy person. So I just danced and I ended up dancing for like three hours by myself in this giant <laughs> empty dance floor. And the whole crew was like cheering and, and watching and like, wow. Yep. Yep. Holly's still out there dancing. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it was so liberating. And especially because we hadn't danced, Sarah actually mentioned that in an article when someone asked her about it. And she was like, no, my stand-in danced for even longer. And both of us were like, we just want to keep dancing because we haven't been able to be in spaces or on dance floors and, you know, just let loose in that way. So, yeah. So anyway, that's how I kind of got to know Laureen. And then in season four, I went to LA with the team and I actually shot my succession audition, um, which I got through my agents on my last day in LA before I flew back to New York. Um, and I was already working on episode 406 with them. And then, uh, so I, and I had gotten to know all the producers more when I was in LA with them. And so then when I got back to New York, uh, I found out that I, I booked it. Actually, I was put on hold first and I was still working on set. So I was like on hold and didn't want to talk about it with anyone. Yeah. Um, but I was working with all these people that obviously had seen my tape and had chosen me and it was like waiting for studio approval. But I was just like, I'm just going to be chill and I'm not going to bring it up unless they do. And then I got the booking on my way home from set one day while I was still oh, standing in. And then I, I got to that. play across from her. Yeah. And it was fun. It was fun that she was in the scene that I was also in. So. Yeah. It kind of makes it, I feel like a little bit, almost like a full circle moment. Cause you know, there you are looking at the person that you've been kind of standing in for in your yeah, own scene. It totally was. And it was crazy. Like in that scene, basically they've all won, you know, they won like the group, uh, the ensemble SAG award. And so many of them have won Emmys and like the whole show has won so many Emmys that mm -hmm. I was like, wow, everyone around me in this scene has won SAG awards and emmys for this show this is this is a wild experience i'm just grateful to have gotten to act with them so as we kind of go into wrapping this up i want to touch on something that's my favorite question to ask people that i have which is what is the biggest piece of advice that you've received either recently or just in your life so far that has kept you going well i don't know if this is advice that someone has given me but maybe it's my advice um, yeah for me the most important thing is learning how to listen to yourself mm. I guess I think it's based on a Twyla Tharp quote I'm pretty sure maybe I should take a moment to look it up oh no Twyla Tharp quoting Martha Graham okay 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 
there's this Twyla Tharp quote. I guess Twyla Tharp, choreographer Twyla Tharp, who I love, um, amazing choreographer, is quoting Martha Graham and talks about um, keeping your channel open. Uh, this Here, I'll just read this quote. There's a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action because there's only one of you in all of time. The expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is or how valuable or how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep yourself open and aware to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. There's no satisfaction, whatever, at any time. There is only a queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive. And so what that means to me is noticing what is blocking my channel, mm. noticing what, where the interference comes from, whether it's uh, in a relationship or in like a thought pattern or in some habit that I have or in like social media screen, whatever it is, or it's just learning how to navigate your own artist channel yeah. and when is it open? When is it, when is it closing? When is it opening? What creates the context where it's open? When is it most free? And how did that come about? And the more you're learning your own, you're learning your own voice, you're learning your own, and it's unique to you. I don't think there's anyone that can um, say, if you do this, then it will happen. But I do think it's consistent over time and you start to notice your own patterns. And so I do think it's just a question of practice that over time, we get to know how our own systems operate as artists. Yeah. And then you get more and more clear on what to say yes to, what to say no to. You can listen to that instinct or you make a wild creative choice. Like this thing I just booked was because of a wild creative choice where I, I think I can tell you this much that um, the scene is a walk and talk where, which is basically that like, the character is walking and talking to the camera and like walking down a long corridor. And I worked on succession a long time. There's a lot of walk and talks, not to camera, but um, typically for an audition, you just go against a wall or a backdrop and you're pretty stagnant. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to send them a walk and talk. And I did send them also a stagnant take, but yeah. I just was like, I got a friend and I was like, hold my iPhone. We're going to walk down this corridor and I'm just going to do the scene as it's written and execute it. Cause that's what they need to know. Can I do a walk and talk in heels? And the, I, the casting director who called me and said that I was you know, the director's choice was like, I just asked her, like, did you send the walk and talk? Like, and she was like, yes, we loved it. It was a bold, you know, sometimes the bold choice doesn't work, but it's the point is it's me knowing in that moment, making that decision, is it time for a bold choice or is it not time for a bold choice? And how do yeah. I navigate that? And how do I listen to myself? And there's energetically something in me that's like, I don't know why, but today I just want to do the walk and talk. Yeah. So let's just shoot that. <laughs> you know? And that. she was like, it was so much fun. The director loved it. Like, that's why you got it is because you made that bold choice. So keeping your channel open is my advice. 
I think that is a great way to wrap up this episode. Holly, thank you so much for joining me. I just love being able to sit down and chat with you. And I hope that there are many more over coffee or food or whatever it is in the future, because this was this totally. was great. Totally. Let's do it. And if y'all, if you're listening and you want to check me out, uh, I'm on all the streaming services and on YouTube, it's Holly Cinnamon. And everything is just Holly.cinnamon. Find me, stream me, listen to Small Town Queer. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and make sure you follow Holly on social media and the Bradshaw Effect on social media and subscribe on all the platform streaming services so you don't miss an episode. And I hope you all have a great morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening to this. And uh, see you all later. Bye.